Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Whereas last week I had to speak about a great range of topics to background the 18th century and what's happening, uh, most of tonight's talk, uh, and that's why it's challenging, I'm going to be uh, focusing predominantly, not entirely, but predominantly on one particular topic. And it needs its own, or most of its own talk. Because it is probably the most influential distinct spiritual movement in Judaism of the last two millennia, basically since the Temple period. Uh, this movement that we're going to talk about tonight, uh, of all the movement, and look, the Jewish world constantly pops up new spiritual revitalist movements, but most of them don't last and most of them are kind of pushed aside and become very sectarian and then basically fade into obscurity uh, but this particular one uh, has gone on to take on a kind of a not only a mainstream influence but still exists as its own strand within Judaism we're kind of born into that world because we all live after the 18th century but make no mistake in the 18th century this idea that there would be a a sect within Judaism that would keep itself distinct and yet aspire to be part of the mainstream Jewish world was a very, very unique and, for many people, dangerous concept. And before I talk about that, I'm going to just throw something out there because I want people to be aware of the way in which I view these things. And, and it's very instructive for us in the way that the 18th century acts as the source for so much of our contemporary Jewish world. But unless we understand the 18th century, we just look at these things in today's Jewish world and go, oh, well, that's the way it is. And we don't realize just how they have evolved. When we look at Hasidim today, what we generally perceive is a group that is deeply, deeply conservative. Right? In fact, they're so conservative, I mean, small c conservative, not capital C conservative, obviously, but they are so orthodox and so, yeah, for want of a better word, conservative, that they are what we even call them ultra-orthodox, that we regard them as kind of the, 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 the almost like the repository of the classic um, designation of what we mean by the ultra-conservative part of the Jewish world. And we forget that when it started, Hasidism was a radical movement. It was a ra deeply radical movement. It was not a movement that was holding on to conservative values of the past. It was a huge new shift. And that huge new shift caused huge ruptures inside the Jewish world. So it's always worth remembering that. Why is it that today... <laughs> Why is it that today they are seen by us as ultra-conservative is really the story of the 19th century. 
just as I said that if you really want to understand the introduction to the 18th, you've got to go to the 17th. If you want to know why the Hasidim are viewed and actually view themselves in that way, it's the story of the 19th century because in the 19th century, and we're not going there now because it's not the subject of our talk, but in the 19th century, this huge umbrella came over a wide range of groups in the Jewish world, this new thing called orthodoxy. And that banded together a whole range of disparate, disparate groups who weren't even talking to each other in the 18th century. And that is why they, against the new challenges that were arising, they banded together. And that is why when you catch the bus in Harnoff today, you will see Hasidim and Mitnagdim sitting next to each other, which would have been inconceivable in the 18th century. So all of those terms and so on we'll go into, but we need to look deeply at the 18th century. And so uh, let's just recap a fraction, uh, because as I said, last week I spoke about a great many themes, just to try and background some of the issues what arose out of what we looked at last week is that over the course of the first few decades and beyond of the 18th century, there is a kind of conceptual and physical shift westward. And what I mean by that is that, as we know, many of the great ideas that were going on to change the world were arising out of the West the Enlightenment particularly, and the kind of finishing touches of the age of exploration, the whole conquest of the new world, different ideas in science, art and literature, everything seems to be coming out of the West, and so the focus of people tended to be westward. And within the Jewish world, what we saw is that that, and economically as well, is that that westward focus was also reflected in Jewish leadership. Yeah? You might wake up in the shtetl, but if you want to go anywhere, you're going to be looking kind of westward. The big communities that were really kind of at the forefront of Jewish leadership, you know, in Prague and then Hamburg and Amsterdam, London and so on, that whole kind of momentum westward, not to mention the fact that the new world was about to get going and so on. And so that, well, as I said, reflected in the Jewish world conceptually and also physically, because Jews were once again on the move as these new economic opportunities and political opportunities were opening up as the old medieval world had been breaking down things were opening up for Jews and there was a kind of a westward migration. But I say this on two levels. It wasn't just a westward migration physically, it was also a westward migration mentally and conceptually. As we will see next week, when we look at the rise of the Haskalah, we will see, you know, there were young boys who would literally walk hundreds of miles just to get to a town because they heard there was a book that had come out of the Enlightenment in these towns and so on. There was this feeling that anything interesting was coming out of the West. Now, 
That's one thing to bear in mind. And when you look at all the different things that we discussed last week, you'll see that as an undercurrent and it'll become more and more evident as we go on. But, but, that had a very debilitating effect on what was happening over here. And before I just talk about that one, I just need to draw something that as soon as I draw it, I'm going to leave it on the board for the remainder of tonight's talk, but you need to forget it when I've drawn it because it's just too embarrassing. I'm going to draw a map of Europe, but it's really just for our purposes that we can talk about things. I, it's very rough, all right? I don't want people going home and drawing this at home and showing their family and saying this is what David Solomon said is the map of Europe in the 18th century. It's, it's really just for our purposes, all right? But basically, basically, it's like this. So as you know, just to orient ourselves, there is Spain, right? So here's North Africa. So here's Italy. Here's Greece. <laughs> I can read people's thoughts. It's not cool. Um, and there's Turkey. Uh, there's the land of Israel. Right, okay. So uh, here's England, and here's France, and here is not Germany, is it? It's all these principalities and kingdoms, and basically a very dominant one by this stage is Prussia, and that's well, Prussia is going to become more dominant really over the next century. But Prussia is here, and then basically what you've got is the Austro-Hungarian Empire. This is we discussed last week. This is the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And if you recall, right up until the end of the 17th century, big chunks of the Austro-Hungarian Empire had actually belonged to the Ottoman Empire. And they'd, in a kind of overarching sense, belonged in the Islamic world. This was a huge incursion that the Ottoman Empire had made into Europe, almost as far as Vienna, but not quite. And this was the uh, Austro-Hungary, but this now, by the end of the Turkish Wars, which finished at the end of the 17th century, which weakened the Ottoman Empire, and uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had reclaimed much of this area. And then you had this entity that over the course of the 18th century is going to be no longer by the end of the 18th century, uh, but if you were living in the beginning of the 18th century, this would have been a feature of your map. And that is what it was known as the Polish-Lithuanian kingdom, and that was basically here, right? And then there were these smaller kingdoms, oh well, of course here, that's Russia, right? Uh, and wedged here in what is now an area that we would call everything kind of from Belarus down to Ukraine and Romania and so on, were a number of smaller entities, smaller kingdoms, the names of which will be familiar to you, so that, for example, here, I warned you it was rough, <laughs> but here is Galicia, probably not as big to scale as this, and here, uh, the, remember, these, these kingdoms are no longer with us, and they're all incorporated, and that's one of the stories of the 18th century, this is Podolia. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon, 
If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing, and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. Podolia is now basically an area of the Ukraine. And you have other geographical features. It's not just all flat land. There are many different geographical features, uh, most the predominant of which, which is kind of in that whole area where today Romania and Poland and uh, the Ukraine kind of all intersect, is of course a mountain range that runs through here called the Carpathians. Yeah. So, by the time we're in the 18th century, we have hundreds of thousands of Jews living in these eastern areas. Technically, we haven't yet arrived at the official age of the shtetl yet, uh, which was, has a very official kind of designation. Um, but the model was kind of there, that many Jews were living in these very small villages or market towns that were officially owned by some landlord it was still very much a feudal system but over the course of the last few decades if we're in the 18th century we have started to see that system break down and it wasn't being replaced as it was in western europe by enlightenment ideals it was being replaced by either anarchy or simply more warlords coming in and carving it up for themselves with the nobility once again always trying to raise armies and get them back and the great powers often intervening in these kind of fights. Now, you remember last week we spoke about one of the great antecedents to the 18th century, which was the horrendous 17th century massacres of Chmielnitsky, the Ukrainian Cossack uh, uprising that uh, was just devastating right across this area. I mean, when I say devastating, uh, Podolia, the Jews of Podolia in the in the middle of the 17th century, had almost in, been entirely wiped out. That was an almost an entire genocide against all of the Jews of this area. So if we come to the 18th, this area has only really started to be resettled by Jews. Uh, but one thing that people who study Jewish history sometimes uh, forget is that those uprisings were continuing throughout the 18th century. The big, big one was 1648-1649, the Chmielitsky massacres. But the Haydamak massacres continued right throughout the 18th in various waves. Notably, there was 1734, there was a Haydamak wave that came through. 1750, 1768 was a very, very significant one, a horrendous one. So there were waves throughout the 18th century. And what these waves were... And I'm going to say something now because it occurred to me when I was thinking about this and it's very, very um, provocative what I'm going to say. And I mean that. It's quite contentious. But when you look at the circumstances that led to these uprisings, they were often sparked by a perception amongst the populace of a breakdown in governments and that governments didn't care and the governments were just in it for themselves it's very very familiar and when you look at some of the things that the rabble were being aroused by some of these populist leaders who were saying you know let's make 
you know, Podolia great again. Um, <laughs> obviously, there's a difference because today we've got all sorts of checks and balances on our society. But I guarantee you that if we didn't have those, there'd be a lot of people running amok uh, doing similar things. Now, one of the reasons why the Jews were singled out was not simply because of that ferment, that political unrest, and the Jews were generally allied with the ruling classes, one, because they helped the ruling classes, but B, because the ruling classes were the only ones that could protect them. Uh, but that was being, all of that anti-Semitic fervour was being whipped up by the church big time. Bearing in mind that the priests in the uh, churches over here were not exactly enlightened Einsteins themselves. They weren't terribly much more educated than the rabble that they were talking to. And so that, except that they were coming with this kind of ecclesiastical authority. There were many, many towns where, uh, that, where Jewish communities were wiped out throughout the 18th century uh, precisely because of uh, Christian inflammation. There's no apology for that that can be made. I mean, obviously the Christian church is very contrite about those issues now, but we recognise that as being a significant part of what was going on. So... It is the Catholic Church. Once you start getting into Russia, you're talking about the Russian Orthodox Church, except that I'm glad you raised that because we need to remind ourselves that uh, throughout much of this period, Jews were officially banned from Russia. It was, in fact, only when this entire area got carved up. And so Russia took on huge chunks of this land where suddenly they found themselves uh, ruling over hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of Jews, that they had to create this official pale of settlement where Jews were allowed to live. Because in mainland Russia, uh, Jews were not allowed to live, and that had been the case for a while. Uh, so this... For not allowing Jews to live there? <laughs> I'm only laughing because, you know, if we're going into the reasons for that, um, I mean, <laughs> the uh, nationwide expulsion of the Jews has been a very trendy thing. Uh, going back uh, several hundreds of years, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, I would I could get deeply distracted. The the why um, ranges. Uh, if you go back deep enough into the medieval, it's generally a political economic, but it's always backed by a theological claim. It's always backed. You know, you can be cynical and you can say, ah, oh, Ferdinand and Isabella kicked the Jews out of Spain because they needed all their wealth. When you kick a people out, you confiscate their wealth. They needed all their wealth because they were about to invest it all in conquering the new world. You could say that cynically. But they would say, no, it's because we are trying to create a new idealised Christian Spain. Uh, and every once in a while, you'll get someone come up and say, uh, actually, uh, what are the Jews doing here? Uh, we have discussed that uh, on previous occasions. It's a very, very popular theme. I know why the original expulsion from the UK, from, from Oh, the English one of 1290. Yeah, that was a build-up of debt, and that was its own unique circumstance. I might come back to that. Uh, um, uh, I'm just curious, what was the party line given? Uh, the party line was that it's the, the, Jew, the, Jew, the Jews are a corruption and a blight on our society because they don't believe in Christ. Right, and they... Um, yeah. But we might save questions to the end because we have a fair bit to get through. That's okay. So, 
I would try to create, because what I want to do first, there are different ideas and different models about the rise of Hasidism. And probably the most famous of those is the one I'm going to discuss a little bit with you tonight, because although it's not the only theory, it is probably still the strongest academic theory when we look at the rise of Hasidism. Why did it, why did it appear then? Once again, a good question in history. Why do things appear when they appear? And why did it appear then? Why did it appear there? And why was it so successful? And probably the mainstream academic view is what we call the vacuum theory of the rise of Hasidism. And I want to look at that vacuum idea and what that was all about. And on the one hand, as I said, we have a general conceptual shift physically and mentally of leadership and talent westward, which is already leaving great swaths of Jewish communities alienated. We have the twin devastating effects that I mentioned last week, the twin devastating effects of, on the one hand, the Chmielnitsky massacres that only a short while before had come through this area. And, of course, the devastation caused by the Sabbatean events. And once again, I keep emphasizing this. When we in the 21st century smile and raise an eyebrow at the Sabbatean events, we underestimate just how impactful they were on the late 17th, early 18th century Jewish world. Uh, so, and remember that because for 30 or so years at the end of the 17th century, Podolia and other areas had been part of the Ottoman Empire, that also got some of the full impact of the Sabbatean event. So communities were left demoralized in many ways, while the leadership was focusing more and more westward. I mean, I want you to imagine, if you can, a generation in which spiritual and rabbinic leadership is alienated from the large masses of people and don't really relate to them and their concerns and understand uh, their own particular journeys because they are all... Uh, I mean, think about it. Think about it. What is the guy over here living in some boch in the Ukraine, right? digging up his own turnips and eventually dying in them, what is, and maybe once a week being allowed to milk the communal cow, what does he care about the emden Ibschitz controversy? The whole of the rabbinic world was seen to be consumed with obscure and random intellectual and political debates. The Council of the Four Lands would meet a few times a year and discuss some of the major issues but these people were being left and there were many 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 Jews there already several hundred thousand Jews living in this area and they were left alienated it is not the case in my opinion and I'm very welcome for people to differ on this in the early stages of Hasidism as you find some writers wanting to suggest that Hasidism because they look at the timelines and they go well Hasidism is a response to the Enlightenment these guys didn't know about any enlightenment. 
there's, they're, they're 500 miles from the nearest copy of Newton. I mean, it's not like that. There are many other issues that are creating this tremendous alienation. There's always, in every small community, there's always going to be someone who's going to take on a kind of a quasi-spiritual leadership role, but these people are not particularly learned or particularly uh, informed or particularly equipped spiritually. And even when they are in some of the bigger cities, let's say, for example, in the early 18th century, the biggest Jewish town in Podolia would probably have been somewhere like Brody. And Brody had several important rabbis in it but the focus of those rabbis was not on the Jews living in little villages and so on and the Jews living in little villages who would have had a basic Cheder education right but their rabbis were not equipped to deal with the level of alienation that was happening and it's interesting because the entire intellectual pursuit of the Jewish world at that time inside rabbinic study was focused towards Talmudic excellence, Talmudic pilpul, which is didactic arguments of halakha, which are very important for rabbis who are sitting in Prague and Amsterdam and Vilna, but it's not going to help people who are wondering, why is my life so crap? There's a perception that sometimes people have, it's what we call the overly romanticised perception of this idyllic shtetl life in Europe with this communities with these nice rebbers and so on um, that simply wasn't the case life was tough it was ignorant people did what they could and we know that because inside this period you have itinerant preachers and rabbis who would spend their entire time going from community to community and in some communities they would have to have to teach children Hebrew, so there was no one there to do that. In other communities, they would go and shecht a cow because there was no one to do that, and that would be everyone's meat for the next six months. In another community, they would have to, I don't know, um, say some prayers or teach people what a siddur is or whatever. I mean, very, 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 very basic. These people were deeply alienated, and they were living where they could right throughout this entire area. It's very fertile. And a lot of people were on the land, and they were basically agrarian, but that was about it. But something is fertilizing this ground. And that is, as you know, because we discussed it, um, there was a kind of a spiritual thought revolution or thought transformation that had happened in the 16th century, that is in the end of the 1500s, in Tzfat, in the north of Israel. The great mystical revolution where all these revelations were coming out about the Zohar, about uh, creation, about the Jewish people, a huge mystical revelations, particularly the revelations, and I discussed them last week uh, in the context of Sabbateanism, but the revelations of Isaac Luria. And you need to understand uh, that name because that name is very, that's why um, Lurianic ideas and Isaac Luria is so influential on Jewish thought. Now, so he's living in Svat in the 1570s, but if you fast forward now, we're going to fast forward 120 years and we're in the beginning of the 1800s, say the, 18, the 1720s, those ideas have started to spread out and they're spreading out in a kind of obviously a very, very... Um, romanticized and watered down form but nevertheless spilling 
mysticism as a seed uh, that is going to grow. Uh, one thing that people who are not terribly well versed in Talmudic or Halakhic literature can nevertheless understand concepts uh, of a mystical nature, whether they are superstitious, whether they are simply able to describe the world to them in ways in which they can understand. Not that people are sitting down reading this material, because it's very complex, but the ideas are taking form in the way they're being shaped. And so what we do find is we find mystics wandering around this area. And there were mystics, in fact some of them were even going further west, and those mystics would often take on a title, and that title was Baal Shem. A Baal Shem literally means a master of the name. And what that meant was that this person could do kind of ooga booga, a bit of hocus pocus. They knew how to manipulate names and uh, they knew the divine name. They could use it to do certain powers. They could affect miracles. Many of them were charlatans, but many of them were genuinely deeply spiritual people who in fact were kind of like the equivalent of faith healers. Many of them actually had um, not insignificant knowledge of folk medicine that they would be able to apply. So using all of those things, and of course they were just able to kind of mildly inspire people to just feel better about their very, very difficult, horrendous life. Whether it was because they were stuck in the turnips or because the Haydamaks were coming through or because they were just indescribably poor, uh, lacking resources, lacking facilities. You have to understand that these centralised governments that were emerging this time really didn't care at all about all these Jews living in these small market towns and these villages and these little places all around. So that's a background that I want to, that I want to discuss before we get into the actual tachlis of it, because in uh, 1698, uh, Israel uh, ben Eliezer, I'll draw it in blue, Israel ben Eliezer is born in a town called anyone know? A town called Okup. Okup, which is still there. At the time it was in Podolia. Now it's still in Podolia, but it's in the Ukraine. Um, and that's a town itself that had till recently actually been part of the Ottoman Empire. It's a fortress town, but the Polish nobles had managed to get the town back and he was born then. He was born uh, to a very elderly couple. Now, <laughs> sorry? Well, it was. They accord. No, no, it's interesting you say that because, once again, because we are a mature, adult, intelligent audience, I'm not scared of discussing issues of historiography. I'm not just going to patronize you with stories. In history, we need to know how do we know things. So the life, like so many great charismatic spiritual figures throughout history, across all faith systems, the early life of the Baal Shem Tov is shrouded in mystery. What we tend to know, we know from a very famous book that was published several times, a book that is a classic of Hasidic literature called... Oh. 
Um, uh, do people need me to write in English as well? All right. Shivchei Habesht. The word Besht simply means Baal Shem Tov. That's an acronym for that. It means the praises of the Baal Shem Tov. This book has been absolutely ripped apart by academics and scholars for its uh, veracity uh, or likely uh, veracity or likely not veracity. It's a very, very ap- apocryphal book. And that's a book that might be some reflection of some realities, but it contains many, many stories. You know the famous saying that if you believe all the stories of the Baal Shem Tov, uh, you're a fool. And if you don't believe any individual one of them, you're a heretic. But um, uh, we know a lot from there. And, and some academics have actually tried to do uh, quite considerable research into what was the historicity of the... He definitely existed, but what were the real facts? So the real picture looks like this. He was born to an elderly couple. They probably weren't a hundred as the Shivcha Bisht will best will tell us. Uh, and he was born in Okup, and but by the age of five, approximately, very early on, he was orphaned. So he was raised by the community. And coming, here we go, here we go. He was raised by the community, and he went to Cheder. And uh, one of the interesting things about the uh, all reports of the Baal Shem Tov's education is that it, it, the most conspicuous thing about it was his absence. He uh, was often found wandering around among the forests, communing with, you know, deer and things like that, the things you communicate with in trees in the forest. But uh, he eventually uh, graduated from Cheder and took a job pretty much as the shamus of the local synagogue and as the, as a, as, as the person who just took the kids to and from the school each day, pick them up from their houses, take them to school, bring them back. Wasn't seen by the community as someone possessing any particular talents, a bit of a Rachmanis case, an orphan, we'll let him have that job. But of course, at night, when no one was looking, he was busy becoming the Baal Shem Tov and secreting himself inside the synagogue and studying and praying and studying and studying and becoming this great immense spiritual figure and then he starts wandering once he's already you know uh, a little older he starts wandering around and at a certain point he comes to the town of Brody which as I mentioned before was probably the major Jewish town in Podolia at the time and uh, where he comes to the attention of uh, Rabbi Ephraim of Brody who was the head of the ecclesiastical court, the head of the Bet Din of Brody, who recognizes his greatness and promises his daughter to him. Oh, I know. That's what people did. It's what people did. He would have seen that as doing his daughter the best favor he could. That's, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know. You, you have to understand, when you go, oh, right? On the one hand, we go, ah. Oh, the 18th century, what are you going to do, right? And then you realise, that's still going on today. I mean, really, it is. Anyway, so he promises his daughter to Israel uh, ben Eliezer, and then he dies. So a couple of years later, Israel ben Eliezer comes back into Brody, by which time Ephraim's son, a figure who's very well known to us in Jewish history, we know exactly where he's buried, he's buried on the Mount of Olives, we know who he is, uh, he was the chief rabbi of Brody at the time, uh, Avraham Gershon of Kitov. Avraham Gershon of Kitov. 
and uh, basically <laughs> Israel Baal Shem Tov, who by this time really was living the life of an itinerant wandering peasant in uh, southern Ukraine and you can imagine the kind of thing that would have looked like and he wanders into Brody and he speaks to the head rabbi of Brody and he says to him, Oi, I've come to marry your sister. Right? And obviously that wasn't received too well. So he takes out the document that uh, Avram Gershon's own father had signed and he said, you recognize this is your father's document. He promised to me the sister. And he says, yes, that's my father's handwriting. He goes, well, give me my wife and I'm off. So he goes, that's unbelievable. Like, what is this? If they bring the daughter uh, and they say, are you going to go with this man? And she goes, if that's what my father wanted, then that's what's going to happen. So they go off and obviously begrudgingly, begrudgingly, basically, Avram Gerson gives them kind of a horse and a cart and says, well, you know, I really don't want to see you, but off you go. And they go and live. Now, if you think that the, that the southern Ukraine was a boch in the early 18th century, go try the Carpathian Mountains. They went and lived in the Carpathian Mountains for 10 years under extreme poverty. Basically, he spent every day digging up clay and lime, and she would sell it in the market. And, uh, but during that time, he was developing a significant knowledge as a uh, faith and medicinal healer, and he developed a tremendously charismatic personality. And he was wandering around from town to town being a Baal Shem until he had acquired the reputation of being not just any Baal Shem, he was the Baal Shem Tov. And then, in this important year of 1736, he decided to reveal himself. He had created enough of a following, enough mystical circles of his followers that he was going to say, I am now not just sim some simple pipe-smoking, uh, smelly peasant. I am, in fact, one of the great transformative figures of Jewish history. And he moves uh, his following and he sets himself up as a base in the town of Medziboz. And Medziboz is slightly north so that's already from around here. He's moving up here. And he gathers around him a group of disciples. Now, uh, many things change history. Many things change history. Wars, natural events, all sorts of things. But... I've always believed, as have many students of history, that the one thing that really, more, perhaps more than anything else, changes history is ideas. And it, it, everything I've spoken now about the biography of the Baal Shem Tov is really just a prelude to trying to get to terms with understanding the ideas that he was saying so that we can see how they affected the Jewish world then and how they affect it now. He basically is in Medziboz till the end of his life. He dies in 1760. So he's born in 1698 and he dies in 1760. And, sorry? Yeah, not that old. 
I mean, sixty-two was probably seen as an okay lifespan in those days, but um, there were people, obviously, that were living longer, and there were many people who were living shorter. Uh, so I want to perhaps, um, for those of you who are sitting, well, when is he going to tell us actually what this man was actually saying and what he was thinking? I'm highlighting that after the break, I'm going to spend some time looking at the ideas. What I want to do now until the break is just go over some of the more spectacular aspects of the consequences of his decision to move to Mintibos and effectively start a movement. So by that time, although he has written, he didn't leave any writings, as many of the great spiritual leaders didn't, uh, he was regarded by all of the great sages who were definitely very learned who met him as being extremely erudite and extremely well-versed in everything. Because some of his students were some of the great minds of, 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 of Eastern Europe of the age. The apocryphal story is that, that he claimed he had a spiritual teacher. That spiritual teacher, although prior to going to the Carpathians he'd probably read a book or two. He'd probably read a book or two before he got to the Carpathians. But he said that he was visited by a spiritual teacher who was in fact a manifestation of uh, Achia Hashiloni. Who is familiar with... Uh, anyone know who Achia Hashiloni is? It's a biblical figure. I will remind you. This is why everything in Jewish history keeps coming back, right? It's a biblical figure. In the... Very quickly, because it's so not what we're talking about now, but in the first temple period after the death of King Solomon, who had built the temple in Jerusalem, the kingdom of Israel was split. And that split was actually uh, suggested by God. Uh, it wasn't just a rebellion against the Judean monarchy. It was suggested by God that ten of the tribes take uh, a northern kingdom. And under Yeruvam uh, ben Nevat, Jeroboam I, and the prophet that was designated to tell Jeroboam to go and do this was in fact Achia Hashiloni, which is fascinating because, and no one has really picked up on this except me. I mean, I don't like to say that because it, it, it worries me. Uh, that, I'm sure someone must have noticed this, but that in fact Achia Hashiloni was the prophet who was designated to appoint that huge rift uh, from mainstream Jewry to form this whole other entity and Israel Baal Shem Tov himself says that Achia Hashanah was his own designated teacher so that's an interesting facet so that could be that, that's what he would say that's what he would say but we know that he was at some point he must have been exposed tremendously or self-exposed to huge amounts of Jewish knowledge so he's in Medzibos for 24 years and then he passes away and the movement by this time which has kind of attracted some of the creme de la creme, and you will understand this more after the break when we discuss the ideas as to why this happened, when you un we understand uh, his transformative spiritual project and why it spoke to certain people and why it answered the questions that they were asking and that they wanted to have in their own lives. Uh, and of that circle, one took on the mantle of the Hasidic movement after Israel Baal Shem Tov died, sometimes abbreviated as the Besht, after the Besht died. And that, of course, was... 
Oh, by the way, of course, Avram Gershon of Kitov, after the revelation of the Bolshentov, became a big follower of his brother-in-law. Uh, he actually ended up eventually emigrating to Israel. The Hasidic movement were amongst the first of the European movements to send uh, families to, uh, you know, in this kind of proto-Zionist movement that we'll talk more about next week that happened in the middle of the 18th century. Uh, why it happened in the middle of the 18th century is extremely interesting itself. But, um, but the Hasidic movement generally was taken over by who? You've all heard of this person. You're all sitting there going, I have no idea. But when I say who it is, you're going to go, oh, I'll show you. And you're going to go, oh. Dov Bear, the Magid of Mizrich. Ah. Now, the Magid of Mizrich, the Magid of Mizrich belonged to another type of spiritual class of these guys called Magidim. You know, famously people like the Magid of Dubno, my father used to call Maggie of Dubbo, the, the Magid of Dubno and so on. And a Magid was an itinerant preacher that would literally go from community from Sabbath to Sabbath. And when he came into your community, he would give a sermon and he would tell tales and they would kind of inspire people. They were kind of like, you know, your weekly concert really was going to hear the Magid. Extremely learned, but one thing the Magid was doing for the first, uh, for the first uh, few decades of his life was attempting that which many, many uh, young men were attempting uh, in the Jewish world at the time, and that was to live the life of an ascetic. Under the influence of Lurianic Kabbalah, the idea was to make yourself as holy as possible. How can you escape the awfulness of this existence? By escaping it. And that is, you fast a lot. You punish yourself, you roll yourself around in the snow, you spend much of your time learning and studying and praying and just trying to be holy, you learn lots and lots of holy things. In fact, the Magad of Mizrich so holied himself that he actually damaged himself physiologically. He was lame for much of the rest of his life because of literally damage that he'd done to himself through these incredible physical exertions. That, of course, all changed when he met the Baal Shem Tov, and that's part of what we're going to talk about. And when the Baal Shem Tov uh, died, he, it was the Magid of all the disciples, not universally, not unanimously accepted, but the Magid of Mizrich, who was the first not only to take over the mantle of the leadership of the Hasidic movement, but was the first to kind of try to systematize or intellectualize the thought revolution of the Baal Shem Tov. But at this stage, it's still radical. It's still a cult. It's a small cult based in Menziboz, but of course, by now, because the new jury of Podolia is quite thirsty for these kind of things, it's spreading very fast. And during the lifetime of the Magid, the Magid dies, the Magid of Mizrich dies in 1772. So during his tenure in charge, which would have been about 12 years, during that time, this new cult, which they're calling the Hasidic movement, which everybody else called the cut, meaning the cult, was growing further and further north 
and was beginning to encroach on the sacred territory of the rabbis of Lithuania. And in Lithuania things were very different. You are fully, fully aware, I am sure, given that I'm talking to a learned Jewish audience in Melbourne, that Lithuania exists on the other line of what historians refer to as the Gefilte Fish Line. <laughs> the Gefilte Fish Line is roughly there, and famously, of course, on this side of the Gefilte Fish Line, which is where many of your families would have come from, right? They're putting sugar in their Gefilte Fish, and it's sweet. And on the other side, it's very different. The, on the other side of the Gefilte Fish Line, in Lithuania, things are much more intellectual. And we're not going to have any of this cultic business. It wasn't just about a spiritual approach. And I, well, once again, don't worry, we're going to talk about that spiritual approach after the break. But it wasn't just about that spiritual approach. They were introducing new practices by which to identify themselves as a separate movement. Notably, prayer. They adopted an entirely different prayer ritual and rite, which we call a nusach, which was much more based on the Sephardic nusach and the nusachs that had come out of the Ottoman Empire as a result of the Lurianic revolutions. That scandalized Europe. What do you mean? We live in this Ashkenaz over here. What are you doing? And they made certain changes in dress and certain changes in the way they were doing ritual slaughter and all sorts of things. And so it was practices, but it was also a deep philosophical difference. And of course, once you get into Lithuania, where is into the Litvisha world, the Litvaks, what is happening there? Where is the great big center of learning for them? Vilna, up here. And of course, by the time you get to the 1770s, who is sitting in Vilna by now at the absolute height of their career is Elijah the Gaon of Vilna, who I will be talking at some length about next week. Elijah the Gaon of Vilna, I'm here to tell you, and like I said, he's not the subject of tonight's talk except in as much as he features as part of the Hasidic story, but he is the towering, enormous figure of 18th century Jewish history, of rabbinic history. He is a mind beyond imagining. He is probably the greatest Jewish intellect since Maimonides. And he's sitting in Vilna in the 18th century. And he never gets involved in anything. He sits in his room with his very small select group of students and doesn't get involved in anything to do with communal disputes or fights or debates. You remember I spoke last week that they went to him when he was still young. He was only in his late 20s, around 30, with the Emden Ibschitz debate. And he said, no, no I'm not going to comment on that. But this was the one that brought the Gaon of Vilna out of his room. And he pronounced upon the entire Hasidic community an excommunication. <laughs> and we laugh, but you have to realize that, first of all, excommunications were, um, were 
there are probably more excommunications in the 18th century than any other time in Jewish history, but it is devastating. The Maggid of Mizrich, whose health was already in decline, did not last long after that ban of excommunication by the Gaon of Vilna. This is a massive thing. You know, they sent two students. The Maggid of Mizrich sent his top two students, his two greatest, I wouldn't even call them students, disciples, because his own disciples were themselves in spiritual giants. Who did he send? Who did the Maggid send? Yes, <laughs> although, although at that stage, of course, um, he wasn't the Lubavitcher Rebbe because they hadn't gone anywhere near Lubavitch yet. Yeah, but he sent Shnir Zalman of Liadi and he sent uh, Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk and he sent them to the Gaon of Vilna to try and effect a kind of rapprochement and the Gaon of Vilna refused to see them, refused to meet with them. Of course, they say that had that happened, had he seen the kind of quality of people that were emerging from the Hasidic world, things might have been different. But the intensity... Remember, last week I said the emden Ibshitz debate was the second biggest machlokas of the 18th century, because that split Europe. But the Hasidic movements, that split families. That split right across the board the oppositional forces to the Hasidic movement were, were telling, were saying, and this is the excommunication of the Gaon of Vilna, have nothing to do with them. You may not marry their children. You may not pray with them. You may not eat with them or associate with them. They are to remain outside the Jewish fold until they return and repent of this heretical movement and this sin of creating for themselves a cult within the Jewish world. The, the opposition was fierce and it, was, it broke, it tore communities apart. Famously, you know, some of the rabbis that went on to become Hasidic leaders were rabbis in communities that outed themselves as the followers of the Baal Shem Tov and were kicked out of their communities on the same day. On the same day, the famous uh, Yaakov Yosef of Polnoy, who goes on to become the first kind of person to write down the thoughts of the Baal Shem Tov and the Magid in his famous, uh, in his famous book. He was kicked, he and his entire family were kicked out onto the street by their communities, the rabbi of the community, hours before Shabbat on a Friday afternoon. Because he happened to say, you know, well, I don't think that what he's saying is such a bad idea. So this tore things apart and went on for decades. And that opposition was simply becoming more and more intense. All right, we'll have a 10, 15 minute break. When we come back, um, we're going to talk, because there's a lot more interesting events that happen in that, but we're going to talk a little bit about the ideas and then talk about uh, one of the naughtiest boys uh, that's ever popped up in Jewish history. So that'll be interesting. And uh, a few other things. So, as you know, as you know, in, in much of what I, I talk about uh, in these talks, much of what I say is motivated by making sure that we are informed properly at those dinner parties where the subject of Hasidism comes up and to make sure that we know some of the minimums. It is because it is such an enormous, an enormous revolution of thought and spirituality that is so now ingrained in the Jewish world 
uh, that we take a lot of it for granted. Um, and it has a vast, in the last, for a movement that's only a couple of centuries, less, it's only 150 years old, for a movement that is less than a couple of centuries in old, it has a vast array and spectrum of thinkers and leaders. And so I can't really go into a lot of it in detail. There are basically, after the, in the next generation, of the students of the Maggot of Mezrich, and this explains why the Hasidic world is structured the way it is structured now, is that from his disciples is basically, this is very rough, but basically all the different dynasties within the Hasidic world, the different Hasidic courts, the different uh, Hasidic styles and names, which are often taken after the names of the places where they arose, uh, these disciples of the Maggot of Mezrich went on to form those dynasties. And after, he, after the third or fourth generation, it really is dynastic for the most case. It's not the case that uh, students came, uh, disciples came through and became masters in their own right. It went father, son, father, son. If, you, if your father was the Rebbe, that is the Hasidic master of that particular court, then you would become the Rebbe and then your son and so on. So that is the origin of most of that. And that goes to some extent, to some extent, to explain why the Hasidic world culturally and socially uh, became so congealed and conservative and why it lost some of its radical impetus. Uh, not, that alone does not explain it, but it goes to some extent. And I'll get back onto that later. What I want to talk about is what are these ideas and what actually were they? And as I said, because it's such a vast spectrum and millions, millions of words have been spent on explaining these things, uh, it's very challenging to bring down this thought revolution to just a few key ideas. But that's what I'm going to try and do in the next few minutes. And I'm going to basically discuss uh, probably about um, the very, very basic ideas uh, of the Hasidic revolution. And I'll probably cover probably around eight of them. But just very quickly, uh, but bear in mind that that itself is prioritized and it might be seven or eight I might end up discussing, but to bear in mind that it is a, a vast range of ideas. Uh, one way, some of you who are familiar, and I know some of you are familiar through your own reading and interests with the history of religions generally, if you were to compare it to anything, if you would compare the kind of revolution, just to start us thinking about it, it would look a lot like, and this is a bit scandalous, I can only really say this in the museum, I can't say it anywhere else, but it's a bit like the revolution of the Buddha in relation to Hinduism those of you who might be familiar with that kind of revolution. Uh, because prior to the Baal Shem Tov, the basic perception was in Judaism that spiritual attainments were achieved by uh, adherence to a very strict set of rituals and uh, a program of holiness, so that the more dedicated you were to that, uh, the further you were going to be evolved as a spiritual being. And I, I talked before the break about the Maggid of Mizrich, and he would have been a classic example of that kind of asceticism where not everybody is able to get as holy as I am, but I'm going to try. 
But the Baal Shem Tov had a very, very different idea. And if we are to, many scholars have tried to identify what is the, the key idea in Hasidic thought. And many scholars start with, although they also acknowledge there are other ideas, they start with the concept of, that we call in Hebrew, Dvekut. Now the word Dvekut means to cling or to cleave. Yes, very good. Funnily enough, in English, that word to cleave has two different meanings. You can cleave a piece of wood. But it, yes, but it doesn't mean that. It means... It comes from Well, well Devik comes from that. Yeah, yeah. Devik comes from... Um, the, the, the Shorish, the root, Dalid Bet Kuf, is to glue, is to adhere, is to... Now, this idea... Yes, this idea of Dvekut, this idea of, of cleaving really, from the Baal Shem Tov's perspective, involves what we might call an extreme panentheism. Um, some of you are looking at me going, oh, what does that even mean? Um, we've talked very briefly last week about the concept of pantheism. We talked about that in relation to Spinoza, the idea that everything is God. And the Baal Shem Tov is like everything in the universe that you can behold or perceive or come into contact with is a manifestation of the divine. Everything. You are literally embedded inside God. In fact, you, you yourself, your soul is itself an individualistic point of divine consciousness. There's a slight difference between pantheism, as we might describe it with Spinoza, and what we call panentheism, which means that God, which is the David Nieto type that we spoke about, God is still separate from the universe, the divine, the ultimate divine, but is embedded in the universe and is really the universe is just a mode of the divine but you are inside that and everything you're looking at is a manifestation of the divine that means that the Baal Shem Tov adhered to a philosophy of extreme Hashkacha Pratit I will explain that term who is familiar with the term Hashkacha Pratit Right, there in Jewish thought, as it certainly has evolved in Jewish philosophy and Jewish thinking, is that divine providence and that which guides the world, the extent to which that God divines the world, there are different degrees to which people understand that concept. Some people think that the governance or providence of the divine in the world is only a very general thing. God creates the world, he generally runs it, but, you know, it's not really concerned with the details. That concept is called Hashkacha Klalit, general providence. And everybody believes in at least general providence. But some thinkers have taken the idea of Hashkacha Pratit, meaning specific providence, to further and further levels. There are very many views across this, right across the whole gamut of Jewish philosophy. Uh, 
But the Baal Shem Tov's Hashgacha Pratit was extreme in the extreme. If a leaf falls off a tree, that very specific thing happens precisely because God ordains that that happens then and it has a reason and it's part of the whole divine plan. Every single minute detail. So not only everything you're encountering is divine, but everything that happens is on a very, very minute detail divinely ordained. The soul of a human being, and here I'm going to use the term human being as human being, but... Because we're living in the 21st century and I myself regard myself as a universalist so I don't like to make certain distinctions but the Baal Shem Tov is talking about the Jewish soul and there's a reason he's talking about the Jewish soul because if you're living in the Ukraine in the 18th century right there's a very distinct uh, demarcation between Jews and non-Jews and as far as the Baal Shem Tov is concerned non-Jews although he did converse with non-Jews and was very respectful of Gentiles um, most of the non-Jewish world was really much a, simply a part of the natural world that you encountered um, at the best of times uh, as opposed to the worst of times as as well uh, well um, I, I, I don't know where you're going with that but I suppose as as opposed to um, seeing uh, Jews and Gentiles as fundamentally being the same thing. That wasn't necessarily part of that worldview. The Jewish soul, or the soul of a Jew, you see what the Hasidic thought is trying to give people is a sense of identity and hope. No movement in the history of Judaism has been more transformative on the concept of Jewish identity than Hasidism. The Jewish soul, which is a reified point of the individualism of the divine, is in exile. It's in exile in your body. It's in exile in the world. It is enclosed in your body, in fact, as a form of exile. If you try, listen carefully to this point, because this is really the essence of the whole Hasidic approach and what the Baal Shem Tov's own personal spiritual philosophy was. If you try and use your soul's exile to escape from the world to try and reclaim the divine source you will never be able to achieve that because the divine is so far the the essence of the divine that is beyond this world is so far outside of your intellect or emotional capacity to arrive at that you are literally going the wrong way on that journey. The way to come face to face with the divine is to go into the world, not away from the world. It is to meet the divine in the world and how you do that is you go into the world in order to redeem the sparks of divinity that are trapped 
inside nature that are trapped inside the world to allow all of existence to be raised through your soul, through your soul's journey. The body and its embeddedness in the world is simply an interface, to use a modern world, between your soul so that it can access the divine. This means that to be a turnip-schlepping Jew in the shtetl is not losing the lottery, it's winning the lottery. You are the greatest thing that's ever been created. You are a Jew in the world. You are a spark of the divine. You are a member of the house of Israel. And yes, now it looks like Israel is downtrodden. And that itself is a metaphor for the soul. And the way out is through this attitude of complete dvekut, that whatever I'm doing, I'm engaged in, in contact with the creator of the universe who is presenting me with this world around me at the level of extreme hashgacha pratit. So I'm able to have that now. Therefore, therefore, there now becomes a shift, and this is a very, very key feature of Hasidic thought, there becomes a shift where the Baal Shem Tov and his disciples were emphasizing the emotional quality of joy. That God is to be worshipped in joy. A person should be happy all the time because it's exciting to be a Jew in the world. It's exciting to have this encounter with the divine. It is amazing. And therefore God asks us, Ivdu et Hashem besimcha, worship God in joy. Be happy about what you're doing. And it's it, it is, uh, and that's a huge feature. That, that, that is behind the whole notion of Hasidic dance, of Hasidic song, right? People, people before the Baal Shem Tov were not running around Vilna going, ay, 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 ay. Yeah. That is really, well, well, not immediately, not immediately. And maybe in Vilna they're still not doing it. But, no, no but, but, look, 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 you can shake your head, but listen to this, listen to this, Right? You can go somewhere in the Jewish world that has nothing to do with the Hasidic world, right? Go to an Israeli wedding. Watch people dance at an Israeli wedding. I guarantee they were not dancing at weddings like that before the, Hasid, the rise of Hasidism. The rise of Hasidism has introduced this concept of... I'm not saying they weren't happy at weddings or they didn't dance, right? But there's a concept of joy that comes into the whole worship of God of the whole divine. It's not all about... Uh, 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 and, you know, whatever. Now... What I'm talking about is not something that's rare to humankind, but to bring it into Judaism and formulate it in this way. Another very important aspect of uh, Hasidic thought was the concept of, of love, and particularly uh, love for... Now, these are hard concepts sometimes for us to, to listen to today when we're so universal in our outlook, right? And we all want to you know, love Syrian refugees and hug trees and so on. But the, um, the Baal Shem Tov and his disciples are talking about this concept of Ahavat Yisrael, uh, loving one's fellow Jew, because one's fellow Jew is a spark of the divine and equally engaged in this process. Um, and as well, they emphasized the concept, I mean, different leaders and different disciples of different Hasidic groups emphasized one or more of these particular traits. Uh, all adhering to this core philosophy. But another very important aspect was the concept of bitul. Bitul means annulment. 
cancellation or annulment. Annulment, if possible, one strove to annul, annul or cancel one's own ego in the world. In other words, many of the spiritual exercises of the Jewish world that were seen as uh, necessary for spiritual evolution were actually regarded by the Baal Shem Tov as nothing more than uh, attempts to advance a person's own ego and were the, pro the, the product of ego, whereas the, this particular type of thought by cancelling all of those sorts of practices and just being joyous in the world as a Jew and that the holiness is derived from an engagement with reality. Obviously this comes hand in hand with a meticulous observance of the mitzvot. They were not abandoning normative Jewish practice. If anything, they were trying to perfect it. But they were cancelling out all of the various ascetic practices that were regarded as ritualistic practices necessary to make a person holy and holiness. What is the famous statement is that Rahmana libabai, that what God wants is the heart. And what is the huge, and here, if you've been asleep till now, here's the moment you wake up and then I'll send you back to sleep in a second. But listen to this. The really, really massive outcoming of all of that, and this is really the big revolution in terms of practice, is that the end result of the Hasidic revolution and what the Baal Shem Tov did is that whereas study of the Torah and intellectual attainments had been the priority and still was the priority in many parts of the Jewish world, that was now replaced by something that was accessible by everyone. And that is prayer. This huge revolution of the Hasidic movement, that prayer is prioritized over study and prayer is a meritocracy. Remember the famous story that you've all heard about the little boy that walks into the synagogue on Yom Kippur and he doesn't know the words, so he whistles and the Baal Shem Tov is there going, oh, that was the prayer that cracked the decree upstairs, right? In other words, prayer is something we can all partake in. Prayer replaces study as the primary spiritual pathway. And that was scandalous in Vilma, of course. Because Torah study and intellectual attainments was the structure on which the whole rabbinic world of the previous few hundred years had been centered. And yet that had huge far-reaching implications. And there are many, many stories. Hand in hand with that goes along the whole thing of the whole concept of telling stories as well as song and dance music as well as telling stories and obviously there are thousands and thousands of stories of the Baal Shem Tov. Obviously they can't all be completely uh, relied upon necessarily, but they are all indicative of this idea. You know, one of my favorite ones to, to indicate that is about a famous story, and it's actually probably, um, it just feels like it has some basis in truth, but you know, the Baal Shem Tov's wandering around and he comes to some village because he was still wandering all the time, even late in his career, he would wander by himself just from town to town. And he comes into a village and he goes to the prayers and uh, everybody finishes the prayers and they all leave. And the Baal Shem Tov is there and then there's a, there's a man comes up to him at the end and goes, look, you seem like a learned chap. I wonder if you could help me. Um, I, I'm too embarrassed to tell my fellow congregants that I really don't know what's going on in the prayer book and I don't know where they are and whatever. Could you sit and explain the prayer book to me? 
So the Baal Shem Tov sits down with him and they take little bits of paper and they put them in the pages and he writes on the pages so the man can find his way through the prayer book, you know what I mean. And then the Baal Shem Tov says, well, okay, you're going to be okay. Says, yeah, yeah, thank you very much. You've really, really helped me. And then the Baal Shem Tov uh, leaves the building and he leaves the town and he walks out. And this man is so excited that he can now understand the prayer that he picks up the thing and all the pieces of paper fall out. So he, he picks them all up and he holds his sidur and he runs after the Baal Shem Tov. And he sees him in the distance leaving town. So he st- starts running after him. And then he sees the Baal Shem Tov on the other side of a field. He starts running after him. Then he sees him go through a forest and he follows him through the forest. And then he sees the Baal Shem Tov come to a river, right? And the Baal Shem Tov, like, you know, kind of like just, you uh, just basically, oh, well, obviously, <laughs> just walked across the river. And, uh, <laughs> and so this guy goes, well, okay, I'll follow the Baal Shem Tov. And he walks across the river. And, the, and several other episodes like that. And he finally catches him. And the Baal Shem Tov says, what are you doing here? And he says, oh, I've been following you since the town, right? Because all the bits of paper have fallen out of my sidur, right? And he goes, well, how did you get, what happened when you got to the river? And he goes, well, you walked across the river, so I walked across the river. And he goes, you don't need the bits of paper. You're fine. <laughs> right. And that, that's, that's a classic thing of the Baal Shem Tov where simplicity and simple faith of which prayer is a manifestation, prayer ceases to become this ritual by rote exercise and becomes an act of simple faith. And so these are the fundamental tenets of, of Hasidism and why it effected such a profound revolution, not only amongst the great class of uneducated Jews who were looking for hope, who were looking for meaning, who were looking for identity, but also even amongst the most learned who saw in it a tremendous spiritual idea. Now, of the Baal Shem Tov, as I said, there are three, oh, and then the Maggid of Medrich, if you're sitting at that dinner party and Hasidism comes up, there are three you're going to have to know about. There were a lot of disciples and the dynasties, hundreds of dynasties emerged from them and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of Hasidic masters over the course of the last couple of centuries. But there are three that you would want to know about who were disciples of the Magadim I'll just touch on them each for a minute. Uh, one would be, and you've probably all heard of all of them, um, one would be... Uh, Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev. And Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, who interestingly enough did not start a dynasty. There are no Berdichev of Hasidim. Uh, he wrote a book called The Kedushat Levi, and it is uh, his entire approach was based on this concept of the love of Israel. He's called the lover of Israel, and this idea that all of Israel uh, are bound together in this incredible bond of love because they are all engaged in the same exercise of assisting the divine itself out of exile by raising the sparks of the divine that are trapped in exile and that we, in fact, through our love for each other, uh, enable the universe to be sustained and to be built and so on. It's a very, very big exposition of this concept of, of the love uh, of, uh, of humanity that, that um, and I know that some of you are saying, oh yeah, I love of humanity, you mean love of fellow Jews, but really I think that there is a universal idea to emerge from that. He would often pray uh, to God directly and say, God, you know, literally, you know, you're simply not doing the right thing by, by not redeeming the Jewish people. You know, uh, he, he saw a Jew drop his tefillin and the Jew picked up his tefillin and kissed them tenderly. And he goes, if a Jew can do that to tefillin, his tefillin, why can't you do that 
to, uh, to your people Israel. Talk to God in very, very familiar terms. One of the other extremely significant, extremely significant students uh, of the Maggid of Mezrich is Shnir Zalman of Liadi. And uh, Shnir Zalman of Liadi's dynasty, you see, Shnir Zalman of Liadi, his influence, the different, the different Hasidic disciples that became masters in their own right after the Maggid established themselves in different areas of influence. So really the area of influence of Shnir Zalman of Liadi was mostly in Lithuania. And that is why Hasidic groups in Lithuania tended to take on a more intellectual flavor, which, is in, which, 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 which was both necessary and interesting as a reflection of the areas in which they were becoming influential. And that is why he is the progenitor of the dynasty or the system we know as Chabad which is all about chokhmah, binada'at, it's all about intellectual attempts, study, but not just Torah Talmudic study, is that this reflection upon the divine that the Baal Shem Tov and the Magid were talking about becomes almost a science in the thought of Chabad as you put your rational intellect into understanding the enormity of the divine and the complexity of the divine in order to arrive at a point of bitul hayesh, cancellation or annulments of one ego, in order to then transfer that energy into divine worship. Famously, famously, Shnir Zalman of Liadi, one of, and remember I said that the 18th century is just packed with geniuses. He was an enormous genius. And at the age of 20, basically knew everything there was to know. Well, I mean, he literally, he was actually sent home by his teachers at the age of 11. And he actually had good, most 11-year-old boys who were sent home by their teachers uh, <laughs> are sent home because they're in trouble. Uh, he was sent home at the age of 11 by his teachers who told his parents, he told his father that they have nothing left to teach him. So from the age of 11 or 12, he's already studying independently. And at the, yeah, completely. And at the age of 20, uh, he has a choice to go to Medziboz or Mezrich, as it was at this point, and study with the Magid, or to go to Vilna and study with the Gaon of Vilna, who's basically the only person left that could possibly he would be able to learn from. And he famously said, I already know how to learn but no one has taught me how to pray. And so he ended up going to uh, Mizrich, and he ended up becoming uh, the great student of the Maggid, and then because of his intellectual attainments, the Maggid actually told, gave him the task of writing an entire new Shulchan Aruch, which became a Shulchan Aruch for the Hasidic world, and there was an entire compendium of halachic, of halachic laws, and uh, he went on famously uh, to become uh, to write a book called the Tanya which became the effectively the core text of Chabad thought uh, it's been translated it's very very accessible everyone's heard of the Tanya and over the course of seven generations uh, Chabad has probably become the most widely disseminated Hasidic movement in the world but by no means necessarily the biggest or and certainly you know before the war it wasn't necessarily the most influential uh, but it has uh, through uh, seven outstanding leaders over those generations has maintained uh, a certain uh, influence in the Jewish world which continues to grow. Ashnir Zalman of course was also at the forefront of the 
ravages against the Hasidic movement by the, the mitnagdim, the, which literally means the opposers. That term, the mitnagdim, the mitnagdim. They were against the Hasidim generally, but, but, but in other words, Shnizalman of Lali was famously jailed, uh, various accusations of different things. He was accused of supporting, a se- because, he, because they were sending money to Hasidic communities that had gone to live in the land of Israel, they were accused of being spies for the Ottoman Empire and so on and so forth. You know, the usual, but of course, liberated from prison on, and uh, all of those events are marked by the Hasidic world as, um, as festival days uh, because um, they're very important. Now, that, the, the, the third person you need to know about of that generation, although he's just fractionally later, um, is really uh, the third one who's really with us still today very, very much is Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav. Yeah. And, uh, and probably, of all of the, this kind of level of Hasidic leadership, the most interesting and amazing figure, uh, who's, who'd only died, he died when he was only 38, but managed in that time to affect his own revolution within the Hasidic world. Uh, Rabbi Nachman's idea uh, developed this whole concept of Hitbodadut, which means, uh, literally means isolation, but that a person takes themselves off into nature. Sorry? Withdrawal is another way. Histalkut uh, would probably be more accurate thing of withdrawal, but hitbodudut is self-isolation, generally in nature, wandering off by yourself to have like a, literally like a, an Aboriginal walkabout to go and just uh, commune with. But you, when you are on this hitbodudut, uh, you commune with God. Uh, and you actually have out loud conversations with God. Now, a number of recently, I mean, quite a few psychological studies have gone into this kind of thing. And it's actually, um, as long as no one sees you doing it, it's actually when they'll cut you off. But it's actually quite regarded as unbelievably therapeutic to go out and actually talk out your problems to God and talk to God in that second person saying, I'm coming to you, God, I'm talking, these are my problems, but to not hold back and to talk them out and so on. And this became a very, very developed uh, spiritual, psychological science that is still carried on today. You remember the film, that gorgeous film, Wushpizin? Yes? That, that couple, they were Braslav Hasidim. And you can see that at one point in the film, he goes off and he sits by himself in a park on a bench and he has this conversation with God. That's a very Braslavian idea. Now, Nachman uh, of Bratislav also didn't have a dynasty, and so their Rebbe is still today uh, Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav, uh, even though he passed away in 1810. And uh, Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav, who towards the end of his life started having extensive conversations with the new brand of Maskilim, these Jewish Enlightenment intellectuals who were moving away from Judaism, and uh, Rabbi Nachman was in tremendous. Um, who himself was a great grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, was in communion with them and decided uh, at the end of his life, once he contracted a tuberculosis and knew that his life was uh, probably coming to an end, uh, asked if he could go and live in an uh, Uman so that he could be buried in Uman. And people said, oh, why Uman? Because the entire community of Uman, some 10,000 Jews, were wiped out by the Hadamak massacres in 1768. And he said that he needed to be buried there in order to uh, help uh, the souls that were buried there to uh, arrive at a higher level um, in order to do that. Uh, and of course, Uman today is a massive shrine to Rabbi Nachman 
where since the fall of uh, communism and all those countries have opened up in the former Soviet Union, uh, every year, I mean, every year at Rosh Hashanah, uh, now every year is more numbers, right? So I'm sure you know people that have been to Oman and so on, like and now it's apparently 50,000, 60,000 uh, Hasidim descending on Oman. You've got to understand. Listen, listen, listen to this. Listen to this. Because Rabbi Nachman's volumes of writing are very, very, very high level. Rabbi Nachman said, he goes, my, my, Hasidim, my Hasidic thought is not really going to be appreciated for the next couple of hundred years. And for almost two centuries, there were no more than a few hundred Bratislav Hasidim in the world. But in the last 25 years, it has just exploded That's when you go to Israel today and you see those guys with the big white kippah with the thing and then nananachs and they're dancing around the street, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they are, they are Obrastav Hasidim, which itself has become its own complex movement of sub-movements. The Hasidic world today is a complex phenomenon and as I said, the result of 19th century Jewish history became congealed, became ultra-conservative because it aligns itself with conservatism, well, sorry, with orthodoxy in the face of the rise of the Haskalah that we'll talk about next week. Now, in the remaining few minutes, however, as promised, I do need to talk about a couple of other things in the 18th century. Hasidism is a topic that is almost never-ending. We can talk about it more and more. I just wanted to cover the basic ideas, the basic people, the basic issues. But even the Baal Shem Tov himself uh, allied with the opposition to the Hasidic movement. They had to ally together in the 1750s to fight a new threat. Well, not quite, because the Haskalah is still in nappies at that point. <laughs> There is a figure that arises in Eastern Europe, in Podolia, of course, everything's happening in Podolia. And he is, without a doubt, one of the naughtiest boys in Jewish history. And he just happens to pop up in the 18th century, as everything pops up in the 18th century. Put your hand up, don't call it, don't call it, put your hand up if you know who I'm about to talk about. All right, put your hand up when you know who I'm about to talk about. Because this individual got up, and he was a charismatic faith healer and a mystic, and gaining an influence, and he stood up and he says, in the 1750s, and said, ah, oh, <laughs> not only am I a reincarnation of Shabtai Tzvi, but I am also a reincarnation of Jesus, and of the Messiah of every other religion. I am the ultimate redeemer. Who am I talking about? Frank. 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 Jacob Frank. Now, you might think, okay, Jacob Frank. Some people, people then, like now, go, ah, Meshuggah. Right? They don't think the people in the 18th century weren't scared of saying that someone was Meshuggah. But Frank was very influential and started getting a whole following behind him. And he started getting the church interested in him. Because if he was saying that he, he was actually talking about how Jews need to become Christians in order to understand that the fact that really all Jewish sources were actually talking about the Trinity. And that's why, he, so he organized, he, 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 he cajoles the church into organizing in the 1750s. Like those of us who know history realize how anachronistic this is a disputation. 
between the church and the Jews. At this dispute, which Jews don't have a choice in this, the church, you know, you gotta go. So he's bringing it back to that medieval model. At this disputation, Jacob Frank gets up and says, everything that you've heard about the blood libel is true. And I know because I grew up in a Jewish household. Except that you're wrong if you think they put the blood in the matzahs. They put it in the haroset. I'm not kidding. That's why it's red. So that caused untold problems for Jewish communities right across this area. The frankest controversy had to be suddenly, every, everybody else's foribles were stopped for a minute while everybody had to deal with the frankists. Eventually, in the late 1750s, uh, Jacob Frank took, went with about 200 uh, families and they just went wholesale into the church. Uh, and they converted to Christianity. The church found him very, very difficult to accommodate and to handle, naturally. Uh, but that was basically the end of it uh, as far as Jewish history was concerned, although his daughter carried on his movement, whatever. And even till today, even till today, the Jewish world, no one in the Jewish world will publish his book, which is called Divreha Adon, The Words of the Master. We have the book that exists in two manuscripts, one in a private collection and one in the National Library in Israel. No one's going near it. Amazing. Amazing how the 18th century is still with us in so many ways. Right? And don't think that you can say, oh, well, that's interesting. I'll go there tomorrow and I'll get the manuscript and I'll publish it. They won't let you publish it. It's a very, very awkward business, Jacob Frank, and it's still awkward. Now, I want to just finish on one thing I do, which is going to point to next week. Uh, and that is something that happens in 1750-51, because I just want to shift for a little bit away from here. And I want to come back down to Italy. Because remember I was saying that the 18th century, if anywhere is cool in Jewish history, maybe it might be a little bit cool in Amsterdam as well, but cool in terms of, uh, you know, Italy has been going through its own kind of mini uh, enlightenment and the Jewish communities are doing okay and they're producing a lot of very, very interesting and enlightening works and so on. And I talked last week about some of the people, some of the luminaries that were coming out of Italy and Italy had this whole approach to kind of fusing Jewish sources with enlightenment knowledge and enlightenment ways of doing things and science and so on. And I spoke about Nieto, I spoke about Luzzato, I spoke to Ramchal last week. Uh, but in the town of Ferrara in Italy, uh, there's a very important uh, Jewish figure, uh, sage, a scholar called Isaac Lampronti. Now, don't worry too much about if you don't know Lampronti, because he's probably not going to come up at that dinner party, but there is a, an interesting facet about Lampronti, and that is that for decades, in the first part of the 18th century, he was working, um, he was also a physician. I mean, no one, no, no one in Italy is going to be just a rabbi. Do you understand? What sort of job is that for a Jewish boy? No one's going to be just a rabbi. You can't just be a rabbi. You want to be a rabbi, be a rabbi, but you've got to be something. <laughs> so he's a physician, but he's also given a job as a head of the school, the Jewish school in Italy. 
And he, in fact, he gets in trouble from the community because he's using the school's resources and the students' time to help him uh, over decades to compile uh, the first ever encyclopedia, a Jewish encyclopedia, well, Talmudic encyclopedia, arranged according to topics, and he goes right through it. I mean, it just shows you how uptight they were because today that would be seen as a brilliant yeah. educational initiative to get your students to help you compile the encyclopedia, but he got in trouble for it. But eventually, in 1751, he produces the first few volumes, he managed to publish the first few volumes of his magnum opus, which is called Pachad Yitzchak, and it is the first ever Talmudic encyclopedia. And so you're going, ah. Oh, Okay, David, that's kind of interesting. I mean, maybe I could have gone to sleep tonight without having to necessarily know that, but that's okay. Uh, he produces the first encyclopedia, encyclopedia in Jewish history. Anyone know what's amazing about that? Why is it called Pachad? Oh, first of all, that's a verse from the Bible, Pachad Yitzchak. Right? So his name is Yitzchak, his name is Isaac, because he goes, oh, that'll be cute, I'll call it Pachad Yitzchak. Right? But what's, what's amazing... It's a secular... Well, 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 the structure, the structure of the encyclopedia is not a classic Jewish structure. It's, it's, it's according to entries, according to alphabetical, plus he has cross-referencing. It's, it's taking advantage of some of the new um, informational technologies that are now available, especially as you know you're going to print, so you can do things a certain way. But there's a remarkable fact about this. He produces this in 1751. And that is exactly the same year as Diderot. Diderot, this big figure from the French Enlightenment, produces his Encyclopédie, which was the encyclopedia of the French Enlightenment. That is a document that all historians will tell you basically changed the world. It's like one of the major fundamental Enlightenment documents coming out of France, and Diderot publishes this in 1751, and it's exactly the same year that Lampronti produces the Pachad Yitzchak, 1751, the first encyclopedia in Jewish history. In other words, why am I saying this? You might look at it and go, oh, well, okay, well, that's a significant coincidence. Or you might say that really we have to bear in mind when we go to, you know, like look what's going on in the shtetl and the Bach, right? That we have to remember that the Jewish world as a whole is still very much embedded in the major currents of culture and thought that are going on. So it's a bit of a teaser for next week because next week we're going to go shift westward, right? And we're going to look at, you know, who's afraid of the Haskalah. And we'll look at exactly who's afraid and what the challenges, you know, they think in Vilna that Hasidism was a challenge. Well, wait until we get to, you know, wait and see what happens with the rise of, uh, of, of first of all, you know, through uh, Mendelssohn and, and all the other amazing figures of the Haskalah and beyond, the Haskalah, not just the Haskalah, but other figures as well. Of the, uh, of the 18th century that we're going to be looking at next week in the third part. So I hope I'll see most of you for that exciting journey. I know that tonight's talk has been complicated because it's, it's, it's dealing with one particular topic and trying to get into depth with it. And I haven't done, don't think for a second that we have covered even 
is skimmed across the surface of what the Hasidic movement actually is, but it's still with us and uh, will be with us for quite some time to come. But its influence on the Jewish world, its influence on the Jewish world is incalculable. Even when you go and you listen to music, Jewish music today, you know, this is all influenced by this revolution that happened in Podolia and the Ukraine uh, in the, as a result of the tremendous alienation that had happened of, about the events of the 18th century. And yet out of that came this huge thing of hope. The relationship, of course, between the Hasidic movement and subsequent big movements in the 19th century, such as Zionism and so on, uh, are very, 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 very complex. And when we have to come to the late 20th and early 21st century, we're seeing, still seeing some of the outcomes of that complexity. But just as a pure movement, it's without a doubt probably the most influential spiritual movement, certainly of the last thousand years. So I'll leave you with that thought and I'll see you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.